This episode is brought to you by Uber for Business. Dealership costs are rising, but customers still expect top-tier service. Use Uber for Business to keep your customers and parts moving while maintaining control over costs. Manage courtesy rides and access 24-7 support in an easy-to-use dashboard. Learn why thousands of dealerships across the country choose Uber for Business at t.uber.com slash autonews. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Walking around my neighborhood here in suburban Southeast Michigan the past year or so, I noticed an interesting trend. There's at least a half dozen houses with pickup trucks parked in the driveway, and they're parked there because they don't fit in the garage. These aren't small ramshackle garages. These are part of houses built within the past 10, 15, 20 years. And every few months, there's another new pickup in a driveway too big to fit in its garage. It's been a firsthand illustration of a trend I've read about and written about. Americans have supersized their vehicles. We've collectively stopped buying cars, instead favoring pickup trucks and SUVs that keep getting bigger. That has a lot of consequences on land use, on efforts to combat climate change, and on rising traffic death numbers. My guest today is David Zipper. He's a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Taubman Center for State and Local Government, and he writes about issues in transportation for the likes of Slate and Bloomberg City Lab and other outlets. He's going to discuss car bloat or vehicular obesity, whatever you want to call it, and the opposite trend of Americans also embracing micromobility, e-bikes and scooters. Uh, David further discusses the promise of mini cars and the very real challenges that come with trying to shift away from car primacy in America. Let's get right to it. I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with David Zipper. David, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So you wear a lot of hats and you're involved in a lot of uh, transportation related topics and initiatives. Do you want to introduce yourself for those listeners who, uh, who are not familiar with your work? I'm happy to. I am a visiting fellow at Harvard in the Kennedy School, uh, actually at the Taubman Center for State and Local Government, where my work there uh, really focuses, as my writing does as well, as, as well as some advisory stuff I do around uh, transportation and technology. And I'm especially interested in how transportation affects cities and how it affects uh, sort of societal habits and norms and behaviors. Uh, so that means that, and so basically from that role at Harvard, it's given me a chance to um, engage in a lot of public events and also to write a lot. So I I think I've probably written somewhere 30 or 40 articles this year about transportation and technology, everything from autonomous vehicles to uh, e-bikes to uh, road safety. It sort of runs the gamut. Uh, and I've been doing... Um, the, the sort of writing stuff for a few years now. Before that, I actually was in venture capital, focusing on smart cities and transportation. And before that, I was uh, working in city government in Mayor Bloomberg's administration in New York, and then in the mayor's office in Washington, D.C., where I live. So my real background has, has sort of focused on policy and transportation and often innovation for quite a long time now. 
How did you get interested in all these topics, particularly transportation and cities and the interplay there? What was the, what was the genesis for you? I really started with cities. Um, I just find cities dynamic places. They're exciting to me. I grew up in, in a college town, Chapel Hill in North Carolina, and uh, it was always really exciting for me to get to go with my family as a kid to Philadelphia or New York where we had family. And I just have always found cities dynamic. And I found, I, I've studied economics. I found economic development, a, an interesting field. That's actually where I worked in for many years at first. But I'll, I'll tell you what, Pete, I had this moment when I was uh, in the DC mayor's office about a decade ago, focusing on, you know, economic development, trying to get businesses to move from over there to over here and blah, blah, blah. And this was a time like, like, I guess it would be like 2011 or so. Um, when DC was building the first bike share system in the country, uh, where Metro, um, our sub, our, our sort of subway system was on its back foot where ride hail was arriving and Uber was fighting these crazy battles about whether they could launch. And I found myself thinking, this is really affecting day-to-day life in a powerful way and probably in a deeper way than, these economic development incentives that I was sort of uh, hawking and, and working on. And I, w- I sort of had this moment, I remember thinking, you know, I really feel like if I want to be involved in a space where you can truly improve people's lives and think about how like change and innovation could, could arrive in a way that's positive or negative, probably best to really get deep into transportation. Makes a lot of sense. I feel like it is the one thing that touches everybody on a day-to-day basis, whether you're a pedestrian or a driver or or commuting via public transit. Uh, it we're, we all belong to this transportation system. Yeah, and I even would go a step further. I guess, like um, you know, you know the the line, like "Show me your tax system, and I'll tell you your societal values, like what you give credits for, and things like that, or what you tax highly and what you don't." Um, I would say the same thing about your transportation system. Show me your transportation system and I'll tell you whether you really do care about climate and you really do care about road safety or equity or health or if it's kind of hollow talk. Um, I think transportation is an incredibly powerful field when viewed through a lens like that. For sure. Speaking of cities, you and I are scheduled to head to one of my favorite cities here uh, this week. Uh, and that is Austin, Texas. And we're going to be at the Move Mobility Conference, which, uh, you know, I think arguably has become the most interesting transportation related conference other than CES, at least from my lens. Wow. Uh, but you're giving a presentation uh, and I'm wondering if you can give us a sneak preview on on what you'll be talking about and and what are mini cars. Uh, sure, happy to. Um, you're you're quite the hype man for Move America. I've never been before, so I only hope that it is uh, you know lives up to the expectations that you've set. Uh, I, I'm just being candid, and I think you know I have no ties to move to move, but it was really good last year, and I I'm encouraged that this year is going to be even bigger and better based on the uh, the move to a bigger venue in Austin and also the speaker lineup right now, nice. including yourself, of course. Well, it goes without saying, really. Um, no, I, uh, yeah, I, I am going to, to move for the first time, and I will be giving a um, presentation about uh, mini cars, like golf carts and low-speed vehicles, all these quirky small things that have been popping up in Europe and to some degree in the U.S. as well. 
and whether they could be a sort of viable alternative to cars. Um, I'm also then going to do a Q&A with Paul Petrano, who is a senior executive at Wave, the company behind the GEM low-speed vehicle that I bet some of your listeners will know about. Um, but yeah, I've written a lot about mini cars in the last uh, year. Um, I even visited a suburb uh, of, of Atlanta called Peachtree City that has nearly as many golf carts registered as cars. I understand how that happened and what that means for society. And by the way, everyone loves it there. Like it's this like sort of like idyllic place in a lot of ways and the golf carts play a big part in it. Um, but no, I, you want to sneak pre preview what I'm going to be talking about. I find golf carts and mini cars to be very interesting right now for several reasons. One of, from a, from a market or business perspective, I think about Clay Christensen and his famous theory of disruption from um, his book, The The Innovator's Dilemma, which is a bit of a classic in Silicon Valley, about, what, 25 years old now, and how he, he talked about how disruption sort of begins from the bottom and incumbents don't see it coming. And what happens is you end up with these uh, large companies that keep building more expensive, more uh, high performance versions of a product, whether it's a, 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 a hard drive or a, a you know, a, a, a computer or whatever it might be. Um, and then eventually some incumbent comes in and sort of eats their lunch by starting off with something that's a lot cheaper and is lower performance, but good enough for a good number of, of customers to use. And I actually wonder if mini cars are poised to be a real disruptor in the Christiansen sense, because, I mean, you know this, Pete, like how much is a new car in the U.S. now, about fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, I would say it's north of fifty thousand at this point, and, it, and then you've got the interest higher. rates on top of it, um, which have risen. Like the cost of a car is so high, and also the cars are getting so big with these SUVs and trucks. Like it's not fun parallel parking in an urban area or squeezing into a spot. And there's a lot of of uh, sort of trips that that you might take to go a mile or two in an urban area to a school or to a grocery store or the gym where an e-bike or an e-cargo bike or a mini car might be even more convenient as well as far cheaper. So I'm interested in what might happen there. Do you see the mini car then as, as something that's a, um, possibility primarily in an urban area or do you see it beyond beyond just the cityscape i think that urban areas are especially uh well suited because in dense urban areas you have a lot of streets that are you know 25 miles an hour or less and that's often where mini cars are going to be going uh, about the same speed a golf cart frankly will go 20 miles an hour that's going to be very it can mix with with suvs trucks and normal cars on a street like that uh, the cars and the, the trips are relatively shorter, which also works well for mini cars. Um, I think that in rural areas, it's tougher to see the value. However, um, I just went to the beach in North Carolina with uh, my family, and I was surprised how many uh, golf carts I saw there. Even though there's not really dedicated golf cart infrastructure or anything like that, um, they're just useful in a sort of environment like that. So I am bullish on mini cars and I'm looking forward to talking about them at Move.
I'm curious, you wrote in one of your recent Bloomberg stories, if I can quote this line that stood out, uh, these miniature mobility devices could help untether the United States from its destructive and entrenched addiction to automobiles. Uh, is Do you see the mini car then as something consumers are demanding or or is it just that it's the cure-all to some of these uh, these big picture ills that, that are illustrated in that line? Well, to quote a famous meme, why not both? <laughs> <laughs> and that, it, like, have you have you ridden a golf cart? Have you driven one? Uh, it's been a while, but I think I have, yes. Was it fun? On a golf course, it was. Like, I, I'm trying to, I've not done it on a public road. So that's, uh, but but generally, yes, I think it's, uh, it's good for getting around certain areas, be that a golf course or, you know, I guess I think of retirement communities not that i'm quite that yeah. old yet but but I, yeah. I see the niche applications but i wonder how that can grow beyond those yeah the retirement communities are a good one i should have mentioned that too but that's a utilitarian play like if you can't drive a car uh legally because you know your your health may be, may preclude you golf carts could still be available which is very valuable but actually the reason i was asking did you enjoy it golf carts are fun mini cars are fun so, yeah, I do think that there is a real possibility of consumers gravitating toward these vehicles, assuming that they're safe places to use them, um, simply because they are there are real advantages of them against a car um, for pleasure, as well as for the utility of being able to park easily. Um, and but then I, I think there is sort of, those are sort of like the, the the carrots, if you will. The stick is that. Cars are extremely expensive for reasons we were just talking about, but that's even without taking into account all of the negative externalities from of cars. Um, and you know, this may be uh, uncomfortable for some listeners um, for the podcast, but we subsidize cars in so many ways in this country by you know not taxing the or regulating the congestion that every marginal car causes on our streets by not. Uh, taking into account the uh, the safety costs that cars create by endangering everybody else on the road, especially the biggest ones, like the monstrosities, like the Hummers, uh, and you the, and then there's the climate issue too. So if you start factoring in those expenses, then or those costs, I should say, then cars become even more expensive, and many cars become even more valuable because they're electric, they're smaller, they're less dangerous uh, to other other road users. So um, I guess what I would say is I think that a lot of people might gravitate toward mini cars because they're fun and useful, but from a societal perspective, I think that that shift, should it occur, should be welcomed. Curious, like on one hand, I hear what you're saying. And on the other, I see more and more people going out to buy pickups and SUVs, like regardless of the cost. And uh Consumers here seem to gravitate toward the larger vehicles, and at least to address the climate portion, I would say like we have the Ford F one fifty Lightning electric vehicle, the all electric Chevy Silverado is due, I think, this fall. Um, are automakers at least moving in the right direction in terms of transforming their their worst offending vehicles in terms of pollution? Uh, transforming them into electric vehicles and that's they're going to bring consumers along uh, because of that 
Look, electric cars are better for the, the planet than gas powered cars. Like if you take the exact same model and you take out the ice engine and you put in a, a, um, you know, a battery and, and electric powertrain, that is better for the planet, all else being equal. Big emphasis there, Pete, on all else being equal. We have this addiction to car bloat in the United States, in my view, as uh, we have shifted really the entire new car market practically is uh, is SUVs and trucks over four out of five new cars are SUVs and trucks. And those cars are so big and so heavy that first of all, they create real safety issues for everybody else on the road, but they also just require a lot of energy to move. It doesn't matter if that car, that vehicle is electric or powered by gas, it's woefully inefficient. And that's how you end up with crazy comparisons like the electric Hummer that Actually, if you look at the entire amount of emissions it produces, because of course you have to build the thing and you have to generate the power, uh, that the, the, the electricity that's going to power its enormous battery, you know, the electric Hummer actually produces more emissions per mile than many many gasoline powered sedans. So I think it's great that we are shifting the U.S. Um, you know slowly away from gas powered cars toward electric ones that is necessary but we shouldn't be doing it in a way that uh that sort of carries into a new electric age these monstrosities that automakers have been offering really and giving no alternatives to like it's easy to say oh well people want these huge cars that's what americans are buying and while that's true at its surface i would come right back and say well what choice do americans have like Ford doesn't offer a single sedan anymore. This is the company that that was famous for the Taurus and so many other models throughout its history. The, going going back to the you know the Model T, um, but uh, but but even beyond that, and I wrote an article in Slate about this. I think there's like a game theory approach too, where, where car makers could say, "Oh, but people just want big cars." Well, not necessarily. I think it's very rational for for Americans to say, well, even if I want a sedan, I look out on the highway and I'm surrounded by these enormous SUVs and trucks. I don't want to be at a disadvantage because I can't see over them or in a crash, I'm going to end up on the, the the receiving end. So I better buy a bigger vehicle, even if that's not what I would prefer. So I just don't find this whole like, oh, Americans want big cars. So Detroit's just following what they what they want to buy. I don't find that argument compelling. I do find your argument of a vehicular arms race of sorts compelling, though, because I I feel that on the road. Like, even if I wanted something else, like, am I going to put myself at a disadvantage? Um, that's that's a harder question to answer, but it it leads to a question of what is the role of these supersized vehicles, uh, you know, playing in in traffic deaths right now? Obviously. Yeah, regularly over 40,000 deaths per year right now in the United States and be that car to car crashes or car to pedestrian crashes. What what is the role of having these bigger vehicles on the road in greater number? Well, it's not helpful. I'll tell you that much, um, because those bigger vehicles are going to infl this is just high school physics. They're going to have more force because they're heavier. Uh, they're going to uh, basically um, sort of push off onto the other entity that they are hitting. If that is a smaller car, if that's a, someone on a bike, if that's someone who's a pedestrian, any of those 
individuals is going to be in a tough spot running up against, you know, a, uh, a Hummer or something like that. Um, but it's not just the weight. It's also the blind spots because these trucks and SUVs are so tall. You have much longer uh, blind spots because you can't see what's in front of you. You also have the, 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 uh, the A pillar that can block uh, people at, at, at a, can block pedestrians when you're turning. Um, and this is not just sort of like guesstimates. There have been studies into this by a whole variety of entities from IIHS to Justin Tyndall, University of Hawaii, who calculated that just simply the shift from sedans to SUVs, forget about pickup trucks, forget about the fact that the SUVs have gotten bigger from about 2000 to 2015, I think he did his research, if I get that right, uh, led to a thousand extra pedestrian deaths in the U.S. Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. I, I hear automakers sometimes, uh, their representatives or comms people, you know, like wring their hands and say, no, 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 we don't know if it's SUVs or trucks. I, there was one guy who was claiming that it was because like we don't have enough street lighting in cities and that's why pedestrian deaths are at a 40 year high. And it just reminds me of people defending like, you know, tobacco uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I'm like, you you know that we, the studies all agree this is happening. So either you're going to be honest about it or you're not. There was an insurance institute for highway safety study that, that piggybacked on a lot of the research that had already shown that, um, you know, pickups and SUVs just by their growth and size were causing more, more pedestrian deaths, but it, it also spoke to what you just said about, um, you know, the A-pillar kind of gets in the way and that there's more frequent crashes when these vehicles are turning into pedestrians because they can't see them. So as we have more frequent crashes between uh, SUV and pedestrian and these cars, as you mentioned, are, are bringing a greater lethality to, uh, to those collisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I would be, um, it would be refreshing if the auto industry acknowledge the reality of this problem rather than pretend it doesn't exist. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with David for a word from this week's sponsor. When we return, David and I pick up the conversation discussing autonomous vehicle technology and more. Are you a dealership looking to save time and control costs while improving your customer experience? Your search is over. With Uber for Business, you can request rides for customers, control transport costs, and streamline operations in one easy-to-use dashboard. With Uber Central on Uber for Business, you can coordinate courtesy rides for customers, review trips, and manage costs in one place, supplement your fleet of loaner cars with Uber, and provide a seamless, familiar experience for customers, move parts between locations with ease to streamline repairs and reduce wait times for clients. Access on-demand support for your dealership 24-7. Our auto solution is great for customers and even better for your business. Learn more about how Uber for Business can help you save time and control costs while building customer loyalty at t.uber.com slash autonews. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating, but is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. 
Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to my conversation with Harvard Kennedy School Visiting Fellow, David Zipper. I'm curious, David, like we have the auto industry adding more forward-facing cameras, more LiDAR sensors, more driver assist systems, collision avoidance features. Like, is, is that all too new, essentially, to, to start reducing numbers, or, or is technology fundamentally not going to save us from these types of problems? Well, those technologies are under development. It seems like some of them can be helpful, like automatic braking systems for sure. But these systems are also expensive to to build or develop. They add to the price of already expensive cars, which are creating creating an equity issue that in much of the country, you have to have a car to uh, be able to reach jobs and and improve your life. And, and, you know, when a new car is $50,000, that precludes a huge swath of the country from getting one. So that's one issue. But also, we don't know how these technologies, how well they're going to work ultimately. And some of their functionality is limited. For example, pedestrian detection uh, isn't going to do much if the car is going 45 miles an hour or more, if the car just can't slow down in time, if it spots a pedestrian. So I find myself, when thinking about the whole role of automotive safety technology, which the auto industry loves to talk about and say, hey, look, we're fixing this problem that we created ourselves. Um, they don't say that, but that's what I, how I sort of portray them saying it. <laughs> um, you can see this with Peter's chuckling to himself on the screen for dear yes. listeners. Um, but uh, but no, what I think about is I, I, I here's what I would say, Pete. I I've, was in um, a couple of European countries over the last year that have rock bottom death rates. I was in Helsinki where they went a full year without a single pedestrian or cyclist death. And then I was in Norway where literally the per capita death rate from or for per capita death rate from dying in a crash in Norway is one ninth what it is in the US. One ninth. And that's a largely rural country. Uh, and I asked uh, transportation officials in Helsinki as well as in Oslo I said, you know, what role has car technology played in your really stunning success at protecting people who are traveling in your city or in your country? In both countries, people looked at me sort of quizzically and said, nothing at all. We simply slowed down cars. That's what we did. <laughs> and I guess in Oslo, they also added, we had regu- we had automated traffic enforcement, which also made sure that we would get the bad guys off of the road, which, by the way, many U.S. states have banned us from using, like Texas. So I find myself saying this whole technology focus on road safety is unnecessary if we're truly serious about reducing crashes. We don't need to go down that path. We could simply focus on... Uh, on road design and on building less aggressively oversized cars. 
I'm going to double down on the technology question here and, and shift from automated emergency braking and driver assist systems to David, what if what if we just took the human driver out of the equation and we had fully self-driving cars uh, and and kind of bought into this idea that humans are the problem? Uh, what, what do you think about self-driving technology? Uh, does that solve this? And, and maybe if I'm going to complicate this question any further, um, what are you seeing out of the self-driving experiments in San Francisco that would inform your thoughts on on the uh, on this question? You're just throwing chum in the water to see what happens <laughs> going on. Um, I again, if my the people I was talking to in Finland and Norway would, uh, if you ask them what role have has automated driving played in your remarkable success with roadway deaths, as Norway hits a post-war low in road deaths, they look at you like you're insane and say nothing, nothing. We simply focused on building bike lanes and slowing down car traffic and putting in automated traffic enforcement. They also don't have the giant SUVs and trucks that we do. So that's one point I would make. By the way, revising a series of particularly dangerous corridors and intersections to be safer, you know, with, with greater visibility, more protection for those who are on foot or biking, that's a lot easier to do. And the benefits can come around a lot faster than waiting around to see if maybe eventually every car in that city can be automated <laughs> or be autonomous rather. Um, but what's happening in San Francisco. Um, so th you asked about like the, with the robo taxis and I've written a long piece in the Atlantic about that. Um, I really worry about a future where robo taxis are dominating urban areas because there simply is limited street space in cities. And even if the robo taxi companies like Cruise and Waymo map, figure out all the technological challenges to operate safely all the time, which is a huge if, by the way, huge, I still question whether a city full of robo taxis actually produces the kind of uh, society and the kind of lifestyle that we actually want, because it's you're going to still have congestion. You're still going to have a shortage of space for those who are walking and biking. Um, you're still going to have emissions because cars kick up, even electric ones kick up emissions from, uh, from road dust and tires and from brakes. And I guess I just find myself overall asking, like, when was the last time you were in a city and you said, God, what a wonderful place to visit, or even maybe I should move here because it's so comfortable getting around in a car. And I don't see how that's going to change when those cars are autonomous. That's just not what creates vivid thriving urban areas. We need to think beyond automobiles completely, I think, if we want to truly build um, like the kinds of cities where people really can flourish. What I have noticed in cities when I've been getting around that has been striking is uh, oftentimes how easy it is to get around via bike or, or to a lesser degree for me, uh, a, a scooter. I'm curious if you see those as as is that the real transportation innovation? If we if we shift uh, ridership and vehicle miles traveled out of, you know, be it a robo taxi or a, a human driven Uber to those types of vehicles, is that what makes a city the better the better overall environment? I mean, I think so. I think that if you're able to shift a lot of people moving in an urban area away from cars into bikes. Uh, into transit, um, just help them get around safely on foot. 
that urban area becomes just sort of more comfortable, feels less dangerous, less intimidating. Um, and I think people can actually be surprised at how, how, uh, comfortable and even delightful it can feel. Like I think about what happened on 14th street in Manhattan in October of 2019, just before the pandemic started, when it was a huge controversy. I don't know if you remember this, so whether to make 14th street car free, this is a major thoroughfare going across Manhattan. And so the city did it. And no one really knew what to expect. A lot of local residents saying, oh, this is going to be just a disaster. People are going to hate it. It's going to be unsafe. Traffic will be terrible. And it was such a success that it actually blew away even the advocates. Um, traffic did not increase. But the thing was, too, like the, the, the street, 14th Street, became quiet. It became like just a pleasing place to be. So the New Yorkers started calling it the, the miracle on 14th Street. Um, that's sort of, it's unfortunate that, you know, the pandemic came so soon afterwards, we've sort of forgotten what happened there in America's largest city. But I think it's really powerful. And I think there's 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 uh, messages there that could resonate far outside of New York City, which admittedly is a unique, like uniquely dense multimodal place. I think there's lessons there that can be applied elsewhere. I have a question about that. You know, you mentioned that there was like this pushback at the beginning and like people thought there's be traffic elsewhere and it was going to be this hugely problematic change. And in the last week, we've seen Washington, D.C. back away from its plan to start issuing tickets for motorists blocking the bus lane. Uh, we've seen officials in Portland, Oregon do away with their plans for a protected bike lane, uh, yeah. putting cars back on the curb. So like big picture question, like when it comes to changing things in transportation, it seems like it's the hardest sector to do anything in. The status quo is not just intractable, but but it pushes back. Um, so we have this example of 14th Street being a success story. We have these others uh, kind of tempting change and, and shying away at the last minute. What is it about transportation that makes it so hard to kind of take this leap of faith uh, and, and make some of these substantial changes. Well, I actually want to be a little more optimistic than than your framing of that question. I think um, I actually think we can make change. I think we have made change. You know, it, it's a, we're in a tough time right now because of the the pandemic recovery. You know, cities are are really anxious about the recovery of their downtowns, and downtowns are dominated by businesses that are terrified of um, you know a prolonged. Um, sort of decline in, in, in customers. And we know that, that there's a long history of business owners thinking erroneously that they need cars to be able to, they need car access to be able to attract customers. There's study after study after study showing that business owners overestimate how many of their customers are arriving by car and underestimate how many arrive by walking, biking, and taking transit. Um, and it's intuitive why they themselves drive the business owners and they hear everybody complaining about parking. So that's what they assume. Um, but anyway, my point was going to be right now, I think in places like DC and Portland, Oregon, you have business owners who are uh, freaking out, saying we need car access to survive, even if they don't really, that's what they think. And you have receptive city leaders who are afraid of doing anything that might get in the way of, of recovery that frankly, we all want to see in our downtowns. But if you go, so that's why I think we have real headways right now in, or headwinds, I should say, in 
in achieving the kind of sort of mode shift or, or reallocation of transportation space in cities that, that we should want to see. But if you look at a, a little bit further back, like before the pandemic, you know, it can feel like another lifetime ago for folks like us, perhaps. But just think about how many bike lanes we had in cities in 2005 versus in 2020. Or think about how many cities had bike share in 2010, like maybe one <laughs> compared to like how embedded bike share is in the fabric of so many large cities in the U.S., I, I don't think that we should assume we can't make progress around transportation. And I say progress for those of us who feel like moving forward means sort of uh, giving people viable, safe ways to travel in cities without relying on an automobile. Um, I think that recent American history shows that we can make progress and that we need to believe that as we knock on wood do come out of the pandemic, we'll be able to make more change faster. Maybe to piggyback on that optimistic note, David, I will ask you about uh, some of the success stories that e-bikes and scooters have had lately. Uh, it seems like there's a ton of consumer demand there, and there's some some wildly successful consumer rebate programs where cities are, yeah. are providing incentives for people to make this mode shift. And uh, maybe to your point, things that we would have never envisioned 15 years ago uh, are happening today in a big way. Can you can you provide some insight on what's happening in that realm? Yeah, I mean, e-bikes have been, I think, just the mo the probably the the breakthrough mobility innovation of the last decade. Um, they are. They, I think if you don't, if you haven't ridden one, you might just think of it as like a, a bicycle with a battery. But it's actually that battery totally transforms what it's capable of doing. You now can transport children or groceries comfortably, you can handle inclement weather or humid weather and hills. But the addition of a battery makes a bicycle a viable uh, alternative to a car for many people for whom a pedal bicycle would not be. So I'm very excited about e-bikes. Um, and I think that they have huge opportunities. Sales are rising very quickly. But yeah, I think that a number of cities and states led by Denver, Colorado, sort of realized this is a powerful way to reduce emissions, to you know support public health, to reduce um, crash risk. So they started making e-bikes cheaper by offering rebates. And for a while I was wary, I'll be honest. My my view on rebates has evolved um, for e-bikes, rebates for e-bikes, um, because in the beginning I thought, well, look, the big constraint on people using e-bikes isn't their cost. They're already much cheaper than a car. It's safety. It's providing bike lanes so that people can feel safe using them. But I think, but I've revised my thinking and I've revised it after talking to a lot of people involved in what's happening in Colorado and who are involved in, in e-bike rebate programs. They're now popping up in other places too. Rhode Island, the other cities in Colorado have them. Um, uh, I know my, my city of district of Columbia just like yesterday approved creating its own program. Uh, several cities in California have them. Uh, but what keeps happening is that these rebates become super popular. They get a lot of people jazzed about e-bikes. And then those people actually become lobbyists, if you will, uh, pushing their local leaders to build those bike lanes. And in some ways, I think it's intuitive, really, because I, I don't know if for, for your, your listeners who bike, um, I think you can appreciate this. Like, you can't really understand 
the need for protected lanes unless and until you've actually ridden a bike in a city. It really is in such a, a eye-opening experience that you can't help but become an advocate for safe streets. So I actually think e-bike rebates are phenomenal, uh, not just because they can get e-bikes in the hands of more people, but because they can create a tailwind for street safety efforts that I think are so necessary. You know, the last time, maybe not the last time I rode a bike in a city, but one of them was in Austin, Texas, because they have a extensive network of protected bike lanes. So to bring this all full circle, uh, perhaps we'll be checking them out in Austin, uh, you know, this week, David. Uh, I am always game for exploring a new city on a bicycle. Um, I, uh, I just did that in Oslo a couple of weeks ago and had such a blast. Johan, if you're listening, thank you for that tour. Uh, but I've never actually biked in Austin, so maybe we'll have to check that out at move. Excellent. Well, let's go do it. And, uh, in the meantime, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Nah, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for today. If you're going to be at the Move Mobility Conference in Austin over the next few days, be sure to check out David's panel on mini cars for a deeper look at everything we talked about here. I hope you liked this episode of the Shift Podcast. If so, please leave us a review and or subscribe at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks again to David for his time. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.